Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. I guess today's legendary engineer producer, Ken Scott. First of all, Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, recently made a statement saying, we want 50 million creators on our platform. Now, a creator is a songwriter, and that's a lot of songwriters to have. They already have 11 million, and that's up 3 million over last year. Still, a lot of songwriters, a lot of competition. What if I told you that BandLab has a lot more than that 50 million? Yeah, BandLab already passed 50 million and is now up to 60 million, and that's up 10 million over the last six months, 20 million over the last 15, so it's growing like crazy. Here's something that will blow your mind. There are 17 million songs per month, or 560,000 songs per day, that are uploaded to BandLab. That's 200 million per year, and that's double the number of tracks that are on Spotify or Amazon or just about any other platform. Just to give you some perspective, Spotify has about 60,000 songs per day that's uploaded, and if you put all the streaming platforms together, It's about 100,000 per day. Now, all these numbers are really daunting. If you're a songwriter sitting at home and just trying to cut songs that you think sound pretty good, or maybe you can sell to somebody, there's a lot of competition out there. But the fact of the matter is that BandLab is really growing and growing fast. Keep in mind that the parent company of BandLab also owns SongStarter, which is a generative AI tool for song ideas. They also own a tool where you can create and launch ad campaigns for Facebook and Instagram, and they also own Reverb Nation. And to take it another step, the parent company owns NME and Uncut Magazines and Guitar.com, as well as a high-end digital audio workstation, Cakewalk. No one ever thinks about BandLab when it comes to streaming platforms, but it's actually bigger than all of them, yet it has money behind it and software to boot. It's an online juggernaut that's exploding way under everyone's radar. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, Universal Audio has a well-deserved reputation for making great hardware and great plugins. But the thing about it is, the plugins were always tied to the hardware. So, in other words, you couldn't really take advantage of them unless you bought one of their hardware pieces, like an Apollo. And this made a lot of sense because the plugins required a lot of extra horsepower that computers didn't have. But that's not the case anymore, where most new computers have plenty of horsepower to easily run even the most power-hungry plugins. So last year, Universal Audio started a new service called Spark. 
that made their plugins available without hardware, but via subscription. So in other words, you can subscribe, and like a lot of other companies, that monthly subscription allows you to access a lot of their plugins. However, recently, Universal Audio took yet a different turn. Now you can buy Universal Audio plugins outright on a perpetual license. Perpetual license meaning you bought it, you own it. Yeah, you don't need the UAD hardware anymore to take advantage of UAD plugins. If you already own the hardware, you get two versions, both the DSP, which is the one that requires the hardware, and the native versions, which work right off of your computer. So where does that leave Universal Audio's Apollo? When you look at it, the core tech is relatively old now, and even though they've always been quality devices known for their sound as well as their plugins, there's lots of great hardware out now and lots of great plugins. So decoupling the software from the hardware could indicate that there's something new coming to replace Apollo very soon. But for now, it means that you can finally get to use some of those great UAD plugins without investing in the hardware. My guest this week is the legendary engineer producer Ken Scott, who has a catalog of accomplishments and credits that are almost too long to list. After getting his start at Abbey Road Studios as a teenager, Ken went on to become one of the five engineers for the Beatles, as well as solo projects for John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Ken was also the producer-engineer for four of the most revered David Bowie albums, along with hit albums for Elton John, Super Tramp, Duran Duran, America, Missing Persons, and many more. He was also instrumental in giving the sound of progressive jazz a much harder edge with his work with Jeff Beck, Maravishnu Orchestra, Stanley Clark, and Billy Cobham. I was lucky enough to work with Ken on his memoir, Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust, that outlined his illustrious career. We even did a project in the studio together, so I got to know him pretty well. A lot of the typical questions that Ken would get, we already covered in the book, so I tried to go in a slightly different direction during the interview. In part one of the two-part interview, we spoke about him going back to Abbey Road Studio 2 to record again, his views on immersive audio, finding Bowie outtakes, working in the box, his favorite plugins, his feeling about autotune, and much more. I spoke with Ken via Zoom from his home studio in the UK. Let's start with exactly what you're doing now. I know you're teaching, and I just saw you do the Pure Mix thing. Right. I Well, I was teaching. Uh, that ended uh, last August. Everyone has lost money due to COVID and all of that, and universities lost a lot. So they, they cut back like mad. And uh, they just spent £20 million on a new building. Just to, yes, so they got rid of staff, but they had a great new building. <laughs> You know, it's yeah. academia. The the students were amazing. I loved being with the students, but uh, academia, I could off to one side for. But uh, no, I, I enjoyed doing that. Let me ask you a question about that. Yeah, did the students appreciate the depth of your background? I think so. Some of them, most definitely, obviously, uh, and the the. I think it was there generally because I could say exactly the same thing as the other teachers there and the other teachers would say and it would just go straight over the top of the students heads i would say exactly the same thing and oh oh maybe that's what we should do mm. that kind of thing so it was it was because of what what i had done 
yeah, it, w- it would sink in a bit more because suddenly it's someone that's proved successful doing these things and uh, they could accept it. But uh, I, yeah, yeah, it, it, it was it was good. I think one of the, one of the high spots for me was uh, one of the things constantly pushing was uh, the the whole thing of mixing via computer monitor mm. as opposed to speak as opposed to loudspeaker monitors, and uh, it was always cover up the computer monitor. No one has ever bought a record because it looked good. They bought it because it sounded good. And I always saying that. And then one day a student came up to me and uh, he said, I went to one of your talks uh, last semester and you, you said about covering up the, the computer monitor. And I did it. I, I tried it. And my mixes were so much better. Thank you. That was, yes, thank you. That's what it's all about. It, it, yeah. I love modern technology, but it's certainly creating problems. Well, let's get there in a second, but let's go back first because you just did this Pyramid series where it, it was really a throwback to uh, the way it used to be, with complete with EMI desk. It was it was a blast to do. I had done an interview with uh, a Monday night interview with Andrew Sheps. That's how I initially got connected with Pure Mix. And then uh, Fab Dupont contacted me and we were just talking. And then this idea came up of, because I, I was saying about how people are interested in how the Beatles record and all that. And he jumped on it and put this whole thing together. And it it, it was expensive. It, it, it was probably the most expensive thing they've ever done. It was flying all of these people into England, get, just getting number two studio Abbey Road. Ain't cheap. Yeah. And then getting all of, we used an old red desk. Unfortunately, they, this, it wasn't the greatest desk in the world. I mean, they, they got rid of all of them a long time ago. This was, this was one that was used for just uh, outside recordings that, that they would travel around with. And, but it was the closest we could get to the, the original red desks. And uh, TG for, for the Abbey Road era and then the right mics, because that was a great thing. I knew they had all of the mics that were needed. And so I did a lot of investigation of pulling up photos of uh, Beatles in the studios to know exactly where, like Norman Smith. I, I was there for a lot of it, but God, it, 60 years ago, I'm sorry, I don't remember. I, I was learning what I was doing as well. So I had no idea. And so it was zeroing in on what the mics were, where they were placed. I think the, the biggest revelation for, for both Fab and I it was uh, a, an STC 4033 on bass drum, which Norman Smith used in the very beginning. Absolutely fucking amazing. No EQ, nothing. And it was incredible. Wow. Yeah, I know. It blew both of us away. We, we couldn't believe it. It was so good. And it, 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 doing it in number two, there's, there's the whole thing. Of, that studio is so amazing. Just to explain what we did, we, we took number two studio for six days. Four days were for the Beatles do, doing, recreating how the Beatles were recorded in four different eras. There was the original, more live type of setup that Norman Smith had to record the early albums. Then it was, we started to move on. Now it was four track and it was, they were getting a bit more into it and tech, 
technology was starting to to get there. That would have been the uh, uh, Beatles for Sale, that type of era. We did the White Album era, because obviously I know a lot about that. And we did Abbey Road era. And, oh, God, here we go. I can't remember what, what point I was getting to. But uh, so we spent four days doing that. And then we did two days with a, a band that I've done several masterclasses with from up here in uh, north of England, a band called Air, H-E-I-R. And we, we did uh, from start to finish with, with them, which was around the piano. They played me several songs, picked out which one I thought we should record. And uh, then we started to work it up. And over the two days, we recorded it. I learned so much. I don't know if I relearned or just learned about Number Two Studio. An incredibly big drum sound when you use the distant mics and the drum, huge in there. And I knew that from working with with uh, Jeff Beck when I did There and Back in Number Two. I, there, there's uh, a track on the album called The Pump, which I managed to use. I, I got a fairly big, big drum sound on that. And uh, so we got that. But then when it came to doing vocal, it was just uh, Neumann U47 in the middle of the studio, no baffles or anything. It was as if it was like in a vocal booth. Wow. The, the, the studio just, I know this might sound ridiculous, but it's almost as if it knows what you want or what you need. And it changes its size accordingly. It, it's it's the most amazing room. It really is. Uh, it's fascinating. I, I watched the uh, uh, Mary McCartney video the, the other day, and uh, to me, not enough was made of how incredible the studio the studio is. Like you've got Nile Rogers. He says, "Oh, it's not the studio. It's it's the musicians." Well, he's a musician. Yeah, he's going to say that, of course. Yeah. But that room is magic. There, there is something about it. You mentioned the 4033 on the kick drum. Yes. Where was that placed? It was about two o'clock, fairly close to the edge, because it was both heads on, just the one mic. It, it, and yeah, it was about two o'clock, I would say. But how far away? Watch, watch, watch the video, then you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In fact, in fact, they just put out, I don't know if you call it a teaser, but it, it, it's sort of showing how it all came together to start with. And there is one bit where, because Fab actually in this states, the biggest discovery for both Ken and I was the mic on the bass drum. And they do a close-up of where it was and, and point to what it was. So you don't even have to pay to see that one. <laughs> okay. I did see, well, I saw the first example, but that was the link you sent me, which is the teaser. Yeah, they did something just yesterday, I think it was. It was put up. Okay. Since we're talking about the Beatles and Abbey Road, I'm... Not delving into the past, but... Yes, right. <laughs> but, but no, I, I'm going to take it to the future here. So... Where do you come down on immersive audio? So I heard the immersive mix for Revolver, and it was actually done at EMI over here with Giles and a very small audience. Yeah. And I've heard lots, and I'm sure like you, I've heard lots of immersive mixes, especially on rock stuff, that just doesn't, you know, it's not exciting, doesn't hold together. This was really good. Interesting. A lot of it was the fact that they didn't try to make it immersive. They used Peter Jackson's technology to separate things out, even on the mono track when it was all four. Uh, no, no yeah. let, let's just get something. Yeah. I think I could be wrong, yeah. but 
this came from a guy that worked at Abbey Road Studios. He came up, Giles was uh, wanted to do, or was, was supposed to be doing a new mix of the Hollywood Bowl, which you could not get the audio, the band audio, because of the girls screaming, even the mics that were up there. And Giles wanted something put together if there was a way of separating things out. And there was uh, an IT guy working at Abbey Road at the time, and he came up with this software that somehow managed to uh, separate things. And I actually, I did a mix a few years ago now of uh, Life on Mars, mm. which was just piano, orchestra, and Bowie, and getting rid of all the rhythm section and all of that. And I, I got James, who was, the, I can't remember his last name, James, the guy that, that came up with this to work on the piano for me because the piano was cut live with the, with bass and drums. So there was a certain amount of leakage of drums into the piano. And I got him to work it to, to get rid of as much of the drums out of the piano as possible. There were three snare hits that we couldn't get rid of. Everything else he cleaned up completely. Wow. And luckily those three snare bits hit just as a point where david was singing and he covered them up each time so they're not really all but no this 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 comes from him it, it was brilliant and i know that giles has kept it going all the way through to to split things uh because of all of the four to fours and all of that kind of thing that we used to have to do so no no it wasn't peter ja i think peter jackson took it for the uh, let it be yes as a matter uh, of fact things and it was it was from James, if I believe. Well, if I'm correct. Giles gave Peter Jackson credit for, for what it's worth. So maybe no they, comment. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. All right. But my point is that was one of the first immersive albums that I heard, or you know, reimagined albums that actually yeah. came out okay. Uh, yeah. Where do you come down on that? Have you done any immersive? I was supposed to. And it got cancelled last minute. I actually went in on my own buck into number two studios. And because my feeling is if you take something the way it was originally recorded, which would have been either mono or stereo, and you, you let's let's take stereo. Uh you you it was recorded to be heard across a certain, just straight across and it's it, all you do it, it, if you take the straightforward instrumentation vocals and everything and just move them around it's the same it's it's the same thing just with in different places and to me that's not what immersive audio should be what i wanted to do for the the project i was supposed to have been doing uh i i fed things through speakers in the studio and picked them up from distant different uh, places in the studio so that I, I would have the opportunity to place them. It would be more like being in uh, a theater or a small club. You can doctor it to the various places that that particular piece of music would work best. And that, that to me is the way to do it. Do it to a, a completely new mix, a completely new version of the record, not the, not just the same old, same old, but just putting them in different places. And as, as much fun as I had doing a 5.1 of, of Ziggy, uh, the Bowie album, I loved doing that. But then I suddenly realized that I was just putting them in different places. It, 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 it's, yeah, it, it's interesting, but. And so I, I think they, they would work best if it's thought of as doing a completely new mix. It has, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the original mix. That's what I wanted to do. 
record labels are not are not really happy with that approach. <laughs> so you probably found interesting. Out. Interestingly enough, it wasn't the label that was the problem. I, I, they, were, they were they were eventually, but what it was was one of the organisations that use submersive audio for for their streaming insists that it matches up with a stereo mix so that someone can switch between the the all round thing to stereo. Yeah. Now there are two problems with that. Well, one is obviously that wouldn't work my way unless i did a completely new stereo mix as well which i was totally prepared to do but that starts to cost more money and that's when it became a little difficult between one label and another label because it was determined well if you're doing a new stereo mix that means you're making all the money and we're not getting anything from it whereas we're paying for the uh immersive audio it just it all got complicated and just got dropped the other problem is that not many people have dealt with or or what I don't believe they have is there is a problem with matching up an old stereo mix with an old uh, analog recording because no tape machine ever ran at the same speed twice yeah and so you can't I've I've been doing a lot of work on stems of original uh, recordings I did for possible use in movies and all that kind of thing and I'm, I've actually had to go in. I get the master mix and got the multi tracks, and I have to fly the the original mix in. And I'm having to uh, use Elastic Audio to match up the original master mix beat by beat, often with with the multi track because they're at completely different speeds. And so, if you're trying to do an immersive audio, it ain't necessarily going to match up, and it can go off. It can go off up to three minutes, three to four minutes over an album side. Wow. It's incredible. I know. It blew me away when I was doing all of these. I knew it was, I knew it was bad because I'd matched up, compare a CD to a, uh, to a disc, to a, a vinyl, to a tape. They're all going to be totally different. There's another reason, though, here for uh, record labels. Record labels approach this as a, a new copyright, so they're not worried about if there's a, a reversion that goes back to, to the artist. So they have this new copyright, so they want it to sound pretty much like the old one, and that's why they're really hot on, you know, making it as close to the stereo when it folds down. But if it... I don't quite understand that mentality, because it's still it would still... You'd still be creating a new copyright with new mixes, surely. There must be something in the legality of yeah. this. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Yeah, well, yeah. look, let's face it, record companies are sinking a fortune into AI so that they never have to pay artists or writers or anything like that again. Yeah. So it, it's we know where they're coming from. It, it, used, it was originally bad, and it's just got worse now because at least back in the day when, it was a, when music was a physical entity, you could go in and you could audit. How the hell do you audit when everything's in a computer that can be show you a hundred different things dependent on what button you push. It, it, you can't go in and audit. There's a company out of Germany, Austria, actually. I can't think of the name of them. And they started as a distributor, as a music distributor, and now they've changed into an auditing company because they yeah. found out that the difference between what the label was showing and what they're finding was as much as 20% sometimes. 
oh, that that's that's minuscule compared to to some of the things I've heard. But uh, then it was never made public because uh, I've I've always thought the whole thing of it, it fascinating that every time there is a large a big act, once they hit it big, they'll go in and audit, and every single time that audit meant there was money owed to the act. It was never the other way around. Now, if it was pure luck, if it was just, oh, that was an accident, then it would work both ways. It never did work both ways. I actually, at one point, tried to get attorneys to do a class action lawsuit against every major label. (laughs) The only trouble was the only ones that understood it, the only attorneys that understood it were the ones that were being paid by record companies. So they, they wouldn't t- touch it with a barge pole. But no, it, it's it's bent. I'm sorry. I'm Look, I'm just coming up to my 76th birthday. I can say what the hell I want these days because <laughs> it ain't going to affect my career or what I owe to. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's bent without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. You redid, um, didn't redo it. I guess it, it was the first time it was released, uh, Starman. And it was the version from um, Top of the Pops. Kind of. Kind of. How do I explain what what used to happen? There was a time when the musicians union over here said that uh, bands had to re-record their songs. They couldn't just lip sync to a record. They had to re-record at least the the track to use on on top of the pops. And so, what would happen is that, like, well, as an example, Bohemian Rhapsody, they wanted them to re-record that in three hours. <laughs> yeah, right. Precisely. Somehow yeah. it was that it got ridiculous yeah. like that. So we were, we did what always happened. We were told, oh, they they want you to record a backing track for Starman. So we went in, we set up, and then the the musicians union rep came in because they're supposed to sit there the entire time to make sure you do it. Then the record company rep comes in and says, oh, this is going to get boring. Why don't we just go around the pub? We can come back when the session's going to end. So of course they they go. By the time they come back, you, you've taken the original mix and everything and, and put it down so that uh, you've got the backing track. We did actually happen to record a backing track for Top of the Pops with a, a, a vocal, David's vocal. It was That was never actually used because if you, if you watch Top of the Pops and compare it to the mix that I did of the backing track, there are strings on the, on the Top of the Pops broadcast which aren't on this backing track. So I, I did a mix of that, which I think feels great. It, it's a, it, they, the band played their asses off. Yeah, it's a really good vocal. It was called the Top of the Pops one because it was it was recorded for that, even though it wasn't specifically used for that. That's the one you did last year. Yeah, right. And did that in the box in this room. <laughs> okay, let me ask you a great. question about that. Yeah. So there's something that's happening there. I think it's a guitar that's playing during the verses. I yeah. never heard before on any of the other versions. It wasn't on there. It, it, this this was just something that, that Rono played on this particular version. And it was so perfect. I know. Because it sounded kind of alien. You know, I, at first I thought, is that a synthesizer? It can't be because it's before synthesizers. What is that? Mm, no. Because we, we used a uh, ARP synthesizer on, oh, on the Ziggy so. album. Okay. So, yes, yeah, right. for Suffragette City and... Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Anyway, yeah, rock and roll suicide. But it, it was brilliant. The, oh the yeah, in but that, yeah. That, I, I did, I've done a few different mixes uh, of of stuff for for David. I I did a different version of changes. There was sax. 
when I was going listening to multi tracks, going through, I discovered there were sax parts that I'd chosen not to use in the original mix, and just bits and pieces. And it just, hell, why? I don't know why I left them out because they're 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 good. So it, I did a mix using those. I beefed up the drums using samples and things to to make it a little more modern. And and that came out as well at some point, just as a, a, a streaming version, I believe. But no, it, it's it's interesting going back on on those and also finding outtakes that such as uh, the the Starman thing. It, it's that's fun. I enjoy it. And the great thing is that David was one of the few artists that insisted that uh, anyone, the only people that could work on his tapes, were the people that did them originally. So you got Tony will be doing whatever it is he did with David. I do whatever I did with David. Uh, I guess uh, other people do whatever they did with David. Yeah, yeah. It's a good policy, sure. Who knows it better? I know. This yeah. way it should be, yeah. in my humble estimation. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before that you're doing a lot of work now and you're doing it in the box at home. Yep, yep. And it's been an interesting transition for you. Oh, yeah. It's, look, don't forget, I come from the era when we did a mix. That was it. There was no going back to it. If, you, if you're going to go back, you did a completely new mix again. That whole thing of being able to keep on revisit and revisit and revisit. And I've fallen into that trap. It's I I hate it, but it's oh maybe I should just take another yeah. listen. <laughs> oh, you know what that could show. It, yeah. It's awful. I hate it, but I've fallen foul of it. And to me, that that's the whole thing with with I, I said earlier about technology. Uh, I love technology, but it's created some some bad things. That to me is one of them because it, it's we can do whatever we want. And I don't know that that's a good thing. And we we basically allow technology to take over from us. It it now controls us. We record something, we've got to use a hundred plugins on it. And the simplest thing, of course, is the cell phone. It's it's on twenty four seven. There aren't many people that will turn it off at night and answer it. It it, it controls us, and it, it's the same with with all of technology. It, it's yeah, it controls us. So when you're mixing at home in the box, just out of curiosity, the monitors that you, what are you using for monitors or just headphones? Please. Okay. Yeah. So are you using anything like uh, the Abbey Road Studio 3 plugin or anything like that? No. Okay. I, I tell you what I have found because uh, I've, I still do masterclasses where I'll bring a band in and record them over a few days. And then sometimes I'll mix in the studio, sometimes I'll, I'll mix at home, or at least try and mix at home. What I found is that working on my old stuff, which I know very well anyway, it, it, I can work relatively easy, easily with, with that. The newer recordings I do, I find it a lot harder for, for whatever reason. I, I've yet to quite fathom why it is. I don't hear it as well. I think it's that thing of the older stuff it was recorded through speakers. It was mixed through speakers. And I'm used to it sound the way it sounds on speakers. So that translates, I think, to the headphones. The newer stuff, I haven't mixed on speakers. I've recorded it, but uh, it, the mixing on speakers is an important uh, part of it. And uh, 
I find it very difficult. Which brings up another question that I wanted to ask you anyway, which is, do you record any differently than you used to? Is there anything that's changed over the years or, you know, because of new gear and technology approaches? I'm not having, I'm not having to uh, bounce down to two tracks kind of thing, yeah. put down 16 guitars and then bounce them down stereo onto two tracks. I'm not having to do that. And that could be one of the problems of why I have with the new recordings, why I have problems in the box. Yeah, I still bring them up as, as two outputs, but it, there's still, I think it's that thing of once I had put them across the, the old way, bounce them down onto two tracks, that's it. I can't change them. Whereas now, they're still all there. The 16 guitars are still all on separate tracks. I can't. Oh, maybe I should bring that one up a bit. Or pull. It, it, it's, I have too many choices. And I think that ultimately is the problem. It's funny. I was just talking to Sylvia Massey the other day about this, and she was telling me that no matter what. How is she? <laughs> uh, she's doing very well, actually. Yes. Good. And she was telling me that when she records multiple guitars, multiple microphones, she makes a decision right there. And so it's, you know, one or two tracks. And the reason why she says she can never get it to sound as good as when they're tracking. So she makes a decision, she commits to it and, and that's it. And then it sounds better later. Yeah. That, that, that to me is very much the number of times that I've gone through something like I'll be recording a, a guitar. It only has to be one. And I don't want it to be quite in your face. So I want a room mic on it and do it. And everyone always, oh, well, you keep them on separate tracks. No, I mix them together. Why and and any sort a lot of effects. If it if I'm if it's an important part of the sound, I keep it on the same track. It's because I've made the decision. That's what it should sound like. And why should I fox around later trying to get it to sound the same way again when I come to mix? It just complicates everything. So no, I'm in total agreement there. But it, it, it's it's that thing. If I were working on tape, obviously I would bounce the guitars down. And get it, get them set the way I hear them then, and do it. But it's not quite. You have the opportunity to go in and change it. So we, being controlled by technology, we have to go in and change it yeah. because we can't make up our fucking minds these days. We can't commit. When you're mixing in the box, just out of curiosity, are there favorite plugins that you have? Yes, the uh, the, the Waves ADT at times I will use. Uh, the Waves, uh, Abbey Road, Plates, I like. The the, uh, I, the the rest of the stuff I use is, is generally uh, probably everything else goes is, is a universal audio plug-in. Like the, their, uh, what is it, the, the EMT 250, mm -hmm. that one. Uh, the, the, some of their compressors, their, their Fairchilds, Fairchild. If anyone would know, you would. So how close... Are the, the waves Abbey Road plates? Oh, I, I, I wish I knew. I, 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 it's, it's been so long, and it was never that important back then. It was just oh, reverb. Okay, turn it up, and that's it. I, it it's become. We 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 get into micro things all the time. One of the other things, and going back on these old recordings, the number of fucking mistakes that are in there that pass by you don't hear them because of the overall thing or even if you do hear them it's oh fuck it it doesn't it doesn't really affect it yeah. uh, but now it's everything has to be perfect and it, it that can that can really deteriorate 
the, the feel of the whole thing. Yeah, I think it's gotten to the point where if it's not, then we notice it more than we ever did. You do? I think so, because we expect everything to be, you know, as perfect as well, possible. Well, okay, let, let's go into auto-tune then. Let's, let's talk about <laughs> that. It's, yeah. I've heard from record companies, that, uh, from A&R guys, that peop- uh, the general public now are so in tune. Their, their sense of pitch is so acute that they will know if it's slightly out. So we have to auto-tune everything to make sure it's perfect. Utter crap. Yeah. I don't, I don't why, 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 is, why is it that the, the old records are still selling and still played on the radio all the time? If it was that crucial, people wouldn't be buying them. They wouldn't be interested in the old acts and buying all those records. It, it, it's, we've, we've been led down a path it, it, by record companies that it has to be a certain way. It doesn't. I have never used auto-tune. I'm sorry. I will change that on something I did recently for one word. I used auto-tune. That was it. That's the only time I've ever used it. And I had to get advice how to use it because I had no idea. Get a good fucking singer. And they, well, the, the only reason is it was a scratch vocal. So the, the, the artist wasn't trying. You might look at it like this where back in the day, musicians were somewhat better. Singers were better because they had more practice because they were in clubs. They were coming up through the system of clubs before they actually got a record deal. And maybe it's not the same in the UK. It was over here. Where before you get no, a record it's, deal, it's you, you had hundreds of gigs under your belt and, and you got yeah. good in front of an audience because you had to. That's Look, let's face it. The Beatles were obviously exceedingly talented. But what also took them to another level was playing three shows a night, six six nights a week in Hamburg for God knows how long. They played so many gigs, they knew each other so well musically. And and just it, that took them to a whole other level. And these days it's, we'll play a couple of gigs in the in the, the garage and uh, then, then we'll do a TikTok video and we'll become huge stars. And I think the other thing is that it, it's, there is so much of, we want to become famous and rich. It's not, we want to make good music. Uh, that which is it, we, another side to it. This, this is this. Is, sorry, this is a real bitch session for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Does it feel good? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get it all out. Sure. Yeah. Stay tuned for part two of the interview with Ken in the next episode. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.